to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley. We're very fortunate today to have Sally Ann Williams, the Chief Executive of Cicada Innovations, with us. Welcome, Sally. Hi, it's great to be here. Sally, you're obviously had a long career at, at Google in Australia prior to this position and I think on the board of World Vision, still on the board of Fishburners. Yep. And a foundation board member, I think, of Startup Oz, is that right? Uh, I wasn't on the board, but I was actually part of the foundation organisation who started it all and actually behind the scenes was doing a lot of support work in the first year or so until as they were getting established, helping them out. Okay. We'll just consider you credentialed for a discussion on innovation and tech in Australia and in particular innovation policy, obviously having been very deeply involved in lots of different parts of it over many years. So you've been 12 months at Cicada Innovations. I'm going to start just by asking, like I had my own view of what deep tech means and that it probably means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but what does it mean in terms of that, the kind of deep tech commercial enterprise or enterprises that are geared towards commercialising that kind of tech? Yeah, it's a really great question and I think it's actually one that we do need to unpack. So it might take a a little bit of time to do this because I think it's a critical one when we're talking about the future of Australia and the future economy. Tech is not all equal and it's not all the same. So I think about tech and innovation as a spectrum. I mean, if I go one end is general tech and that's kind of, you know, very easy very easy technology solutions to be able to bring to market and deploy, often consumer-facing, quite quick, often just software. Deep tech sits at the other end of that spectrum and deep tech is innovations and solutions that are founded in science and engineering. They're heavily dependent on the IP that has been brought to bear in, in the scientific discovery and process. They typically take a really, really long time to bring to market because of the scientific methodology and the engineering testing that needs to happen along the way. They're often in heavily regulated areas. So if you think about medical devices and med tech, if you think about agricultural technologies, if you think about food, all of these things have a regulated pathway to market. It's not exclusive to deep tech, but typically they do have more testing and rigour involved with them. They require patient capital. The classic examples in Australia of deep tech are, you know, the ResMeds, the Cochlea, the Wi-Fi, the CPAP, all of these innovations that took really 30 to nearly 40 years to become overnight successes. And so what we're talking about is discoveries and inventions that are made through science and engineering, solving the really big problems of the world, but take a really long time to actually do that. The good news is deep tech solutions, as we're discovering, tend to be fairly resilient. They tend to be things that can keep on going, no matter the pandemic or crisis that is in front of us. And they really do have the ability to make a foundational change in the initial product offering that they bring to market, but also be a platform to build other discoveries and other innovations on top of. So if you think about something like Wi-Fi, it's an enabling technology and it's it's fundamentally changed the game, not just for all of us who are now working from home and using Wi-Fi and things like that, but it's an enabler of IoT and sensor devices. It's a game changer for doing things in the field, in agriculture. It's a game changer in medical devices. And so when you think about Wi-Fi, it's not just that, it's what you can build on top of it that actually solves some really big challenges as well. 
Okay, so we get an understanding of why deep tech is important, obviously. So I was going to ask, why does it need to be treated differently? And then for all of those reasons that you've just outlined. But in Australia, I just wonder, you're a year into this new role. Mm -hmm. How is your treatment by policymakers? Like it seems to me, outside of looking on in the last five years or so, that uh, shiny end of startups, I guess, that you described initially, tends to get all the love, particularly from politicians. And you wouldn't call deep tech an ugly stepchild because there's been some incredible success stories. But in terms of, I don't know, patient policy, it seems Mm -hmm. to have been neglected. Yeah, it's it's a really great question, and it's it's actually the big conversation that we need to have. Deep tech, by its very nature, is long term. It takes a really long time to work through the discovery, the testing, the bringing the product to market. You need patient capital, but you also need to make sure that you have the right structural policies and cultural practices in place in a country to actually nurture it. And we're a bit of a mixed bag in Australia on our success on that. In some things we've done really well historically, you know, we have actually had some really great long-term investments in research and fundamental research. That's the other thing about deep tech. It doesn't happen on translation. It it is the translation, but it's the translation of fundamental research. And so we do need to have sort of those fundamental research funding opportunities available still. And so CRCs and CRCPs have been really great examples of that. And we can see lots and lots of technology that has actually been brought to market because of those offerings. So I think in some regards, that's really good. And we've done that really well. I think where we still struggle is to actually make deep tech relevant to every individual in society. And so it's hard to have a political conversation because people don't see it. Deep tech, when you're talking about med tech and ag tech and food and it's things like that, it's not something you see. You know, it's not the smart device in your pocket. It's not the online banking that you're engaging with as a consumer every day. It's actually the thing in the hospital that is saving your life in COVID-19. It's that new test kit that's been brought to market that not only diagnoses a respiratory illness, but actually tells you where you've got antibiotic resistance as well so that you can get the most effective treatment in time. Those are things that consumers don't see and politicians don't see and journalists don't see it either. It's hidden innovation, yet it's the fundamental and foundational sort of game-changing technologies that has a massive, massive boon to our economy and is a massive opportunity for us. So we've got to, we've got to become better ourselves as, as being storytellers and talking about how deep tech matters and really unpacking individual innovations and talking about why it's important to support it. And then I think we actually need to go on the journey. For me, though, it's not just a policy discussion. It's actually a business discussion. What's really interesting, if you look, and then certainly if you talk to BCA or anybody else, if you look at how much business invests in R&D in Australia, it is in orders of magnitude less than other companies around the world. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have a business community that necessarily thrives on R&D. It's a really iterative approach to innovation. And so we need both policy levers, but we also need a business community to understand what the opportunity is that they're leaving on the table and find ways, meaningful ways to go on the journey of it and actually bring a deeper engagement with the research possibilities in Australia and the translation, most importantly, the translation of those research. The translation piece, I guess, has been one of the things that Australia has struggled with a bit over many years, again, with some amazing exceptions. We were talking to Michael Biersick from mm-hmm. Control and uh, Sydney University Quantum, and he's described a situation where Australia's investment over many decades in quantum research is starting to create, you know, we find ourselves in a position where we actually have some game in this area and it could be capitalised on. 
if we have the enthusiasm and policies in place behind it. What would be some of the other areas where Australia's, on a research level, has demonstrated some game and now we need to kind of get in behind it from a commercial perspective? Oh, my gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> get amongst it. So, so one of the things that we're really, really good at is um, we're really actually really great at artificial intelligence and machine learning. We don't have a lot of specialists in the country, but we're actually really, really good at that and we're really good at the application of that in the fields of medical science and medical technology in agriculture, in automation and in mining. And it's something that we could actually export a lot more of. And I don't mean exporting our talent because that's typically what happens. So, you know, one of the things I did have exposure to working at Google is how many of our amazing technical talent leave and go overseas because that's the competition. It's not domestically, it's overseas. And so our machine learning and AI experts do tend to do that because the business roles aren't necessarily there for them yet in Australia. So I think that's one area that's really interesting. Medical devices and medical technology is another field where we really do punch above our weight. And I think Australia has a little bit more visibility. The general population has a bit more visibility of of this right now in COVID-19 because they're seeing the response and they're seeing that, you know, we have a number of research institutes that are directly working on vaccines and preventatives and uh, treatments for COVID-19. Where we also have great capacity, though, is actually around IoT and Wi-Fi. So not just the Wi-Fi component, but actually sensors and chips and the application of those sensors and chips in various ways. We have a company here that in the midst of COVID-19, the the parent company, Columino, has a sensor and they were deploying it in market in residential aged care facilities to help. It's a privacy-preserving technology and they were looking to do it with full detection and monitoring and health and wellbeing. One of the things about this sensor, though, that they actually realised when somebody reached out to them was it is highly, highly accurate for being able to detect temperature from quite a range of distance. And so, you know, they've done this classic, I wouldn't even say pivot, it was actually a pause and execute on a new opportunity in the midst of COVID to bring a new product to market that you can walk past and it can tell the temperature that you have. And so it's completely privacy preserving, but a way of actually going, how do we manage illness? Now, that has application beyond COVID-19 because this is just one pandemic. There's a lot of health scenarios that we need to manage all year round. But being able to take that and deploy it really quickly to market has been revolutionised. And we've got great capacity in doing that. We've done really well in that space in Australia over many, many years in applying sensors and technology in agriculture, in mining, in medicine. We're starting to do that in ocean research and in fields of oceans, which is critical for our long-term health and well-being as a planet and as a nation and as people. We've also got great capacity in monitoring and detection and visual sort of data analysis and recognition as well. Security, we're, we're quite good at cyber. We just don't have enough people in that space and those, those technical skills. But in the fundamental, really challenging research areas, we punch above our weight in that. I did say this could be a long conversation. Yeah. There's actually quite a lot of areas where we're really, really skilled where we fail to recognise that is that we haven't necessarily commercialised technologies in a way that's visible to the market here. And so you have to kind of go digging and you have to sort of know that it's happening to be able to talk about it and to sort of see those investment opportunities. So I'm trying to work out where the missing piece is. I mean, very specifically, if you're a researcher at a university, you've got this incredible piece of, it's not even a piece of technology, it's just this interesting thing. 
Now, the likelihood of that interesting thing being commercialized, the best way for that to happen yeah. is to bring traditional businesses in that can see it and go, wow, that's great, and bring it out. Or it's to have the guy who developed that interesting thing to have an entrepreneurial gene and take it out themselves. What's the, the more successful route? Look, I don't think there's so much as a more successful route. I think the chance of that scientist having an entrepreneurial gene and wanting to go down that path are not always high, but it does happen. And those are the standouts and the stellar successes that we hear about because it's somebody completely passionate, not about their research, they're passionate about the problem that they're trying to solve and their research has been driven to solve that problem and so now they want to bring that to market. Where I think there's an opportunity in Australia and where we do lag is actually that really deep business engagement in research and in the translation of that research. And if I look to how many businesses here function, the spend that they have on R&D is less than 1%. And in times of crisis, it, it just drops off completely. It's all about actually preserving capital and preserving cash versus looking for the next opportunity. That differs really dramatically when you look at companies in the US, when you look in Europe, and when you look elsewhere, where every single company, every business is thinking about how they're going to be disrupted and how their business is going to have to dramatically transform without a pandemic, without those scenarios, they're kind of conscious of the fact of that. And so they're always looking for what is that next thing. And they're engaging with a long-term perspective that R&D is going to come up with that next thing for them. And I think that's a really different cultural dynamic that we're seeing. And it's one that we need to actually find a way to break through because we want businesses in Australia to flourish. We want them to thrive and survive, but they need to do that by diversifying what their opportunities are, what their products and services are, and helping them become a much deeper R&D sort of driven business. And the means for that, you know, there's lots of different mechanisms for it. We've seen a lot of people working in this space. We've seen accelerators come and go. We'll see a lot of more of them go, I would say. Maybe some will come. We've had people turn up their own innovation labs. But at the heart of it, I think what they've often tried to do is just engage at a surface level. They haven't tried to do a fundamental business transformation process that changes from the top down about how much of their time and effort as an organisation they're going to be actually searching for and looking for that next big thing versus just mitigating their costs. So just on that, yes, this is an area that Australian business hasn't been terrific at, but, you know, it's hard to, across the many thousands of businesses in, in Australia, you, it's hard to, mm -hmm. to deliver that message on an individual basis. I'm just wondering, given that we are now in recession, given that mm -hmm. we are in, you know, still at least neck deep in a, in a global pandemic, and that we've never had a burning platform excuse mm -hmm. is kind of has left us. Is there anything you're seeing in the policy discussions, particularly around groups like the BCA, the mm -hmm. industry group, you know, or the Chamber of Commerce and Industry that makes you think, oh, there is a burning platform. These people are jumping on board R&D. Is there anything you've, you've heard that makes you think, wow, we're there, we're going to do it? Not yet, but I'm really hopeful. I think there's some really great discussions that are happening right now around supply chains and manufacturing, and that's because people have felt the pain. I think one of the challenges is, right, for a burning platform to exist, it's either created for you by what's going on around the environment and it's lit on fire and you have to deal with it, or you have to create it yourself. Now, who in their right mind in their business is going to go out and deliberately create a burning platform from themselves? That's asking for a lot. And in Australia, when you've got, you know, if you're a listed company and you've got boards and you've got all these other fiduciary responsibilities, nobody wants to disrupt themselves, but we need to kind of get that way. 
What COVID has actually done, though, and what the bushfires have done and the floods have done in this very short period of time, I think, is actually disrupt people to the point of pain, which hurts, and it's not good, but it has actually created a burning platform that you've had to pivot or extend yourself or think differently or you won't survive it. And that's a really painful lesson to learn. But I do think there's some businesses that are out there really actively learning it, right? There's a, there's a really strong conversation about what does a diverse, diversified supply chain look like and how do you de-risk the fact that you only have one supplier and, you know, 90% of, of what's in your tech or in your device or in, you know, whatever product you're bringing to market comes from Wuhan. What are you going to do to mitigate against that? Is it about keeping things on shore? Is it about having an alternative supply chain? It is about working with your provider to ask them what are their alternative sites. There's a, a whole risk discussion around supply chains that's happening right now, which is really critical. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is around unpacking what modern manufacturing looks like in this country. I think we have a mental image that it's actually just creating factories that make cars and make things. Not necessarily. What's really interesting is we're a manufacturing hub at Cicada Innovations, and most people would not know that, but we've got production happening on site for medical devices the sensor that I talked about before, for a whole range of products and services that are being built here in the facilities and in the labs and actually being deployed to market and being deployed to market in Australia and also globally. So we need to kind of really have a really robust discussion about what manufacturing can and should be in Australia and how do we skill up for that? Because the skills are not going to be taught for all of those things necessarily at university. They are vocational skills in a lot of ways. So how do we bring together these two components and actually do it in a much more robust way and also provide really good access to early stage companies so that they can manufacture and bring new things to market. And it doesn't mean manufacturing will only happen in Australia by any means. Supply chains are going to be global for the long term. That's not going to change. But it does mean that you could actually do your early stage prototyping here or there may be some things that are better made here and we should have that capacity and capability. So that's one conversation that I see both business now engaging in because they felt the pain of their supply chains being disrupted and policymakers. You know, Karen Andrews has talked about this a lot and I think it's something that we can get right and we can actually thrive and flourish in in Australia. Yeah, there is a manufacturing task force that's part of the COVID response mm. mission. Yeah. And it produced a draft report that really didn't paint the picture that you've just painted. It really was very much focused on lowering the cost of energy for, for what would be large-scale manufacturers. It wasn't taking into account the manufacture of biologicals, yep. satellites, or that, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's where we have to be smart about it, right? Is large-scale manufacturing going to be something that we can be cost competitive at? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's some things, but there are other things like biologicals and elsewhere where there's huge opportunity for us to do it. And not just from a capability perspective, but also a supply chain perspective. If we want to sort of get into synthetic biology, this is a great country to be able to stand up capabilities in that space. And, you know, I know of at least two or three conversations that were happening pre-COVID with international players who were looking to set up supply chains in Australia because of the agricultural produce, because of the capacity and the capabilities. So, so we do have opportunities in front of us. We just have to pick the right ones. Okay, that's always a tough one. I want to, uh, conscious of time, uh, let's just jump on skills for a minute. Obviously, mm -hmm. Deep Tech takes a lot of very smart people who've done a lot of study over a long period of time and have a, a very particular you know, set of skills behind them. And on any given project, they're hard to find, right? Now, COVID has shut our borders. What are you hoping from government in terms of 
either making the border more porous or uh, enabling some kind of leave pass for deep tech companies to access offshore skills where required. Sorry, I'm going to add one other thing. Should we be marketing our response to COVID as Australia now not only has great beaches, it also has a demonstrably effective social organisation? Yes, to the second question. I think absolutely. Behind the scenes, we were involved in a lot of the COVID response because so many of our companies here are directly in that supply chain with either test kits or sensors or, you know, manufacturing PPE and all sorts of things that we're being asked to pivot and do. And we've seen what it's like from going from naught to 100 very, very quickly. So I do think it's something that we should talk up and we should be proud of. We should be proud of when we do things right and we do it well, we should talk about it but acknowledge that we don't always get it right and there's lots of things that we need to work on. So at the same time, you know, we we should humble brag, if you like, recognising that there's things in our society that we can't stand hand on heart proud of. In terms of talent, what's really been interesting during this time is we've actually, our companies here have grown. We've had a number of people move into the building and we've had a number of people hiring. Where the talent pool is starting to get really tight and really tricky is that we have a lot of international students in the country who are postgraduates, postdocs and others who are now out of funding, you know, are really, really struggling. I think finding avenues and ways to have them in skilled employment and employed and keep them here would be really valuable, not just for the companies who need that talent, but for those individuals and those students as well. And there's an opportunity there. And there's an opportunity to, you know, make sure that we do have pathways for both our domestic and international graduates coming out of higher education. And and I think we do have capacity. When it comes to talent coming through, I think the international market and opening up those borders is going to be challenging for a little while. I might be quite controversial here. I don't think anybody should just get a free pass on bringing people in. I think you really should be, you should have to demonstrate that they're needed for the business. And we know that you need senior talent and you need to bring it in from overseas. You know, I've seen that at Google. I've seen that here with our companies. Sometimes you can't find that person here. But I think it's a little bit like the conversation about we want more people of diverse backgrounds in our organisations as well. Wanting it doesn't make it happen. So you have to put in the hard yards. So I think we need to look locally. We need to see the talent that's in the country. We need to do every best effort to employ people locally where we can. But we also need to be able to go, okay, we can't find that right person. So here's the right talent we've identified. How do we bring them into the country? And and recognise that bringing somebody in, it's not a one-way street. Like we really get value not just in that business, but actually in society at large because they do come, they do live here, they contribute to society, they spend money in society, they pay taxes here. And so we need to look at the economic benefit of somebody coming in and, and really kind of acknowledge that and see how can we keep them for the long haul because they may spin out and do another company down the track. So I think just having a bit of a high level perspective, but I will challenge one thing that the assumption is it's always university graduates that we want in deep tech. There's actually a lot of roles for people with um, skills beyond that. So vocational skills are really needed. If you have an energy company, if you have new batteries, or if you are in a solar or any sort of renewables, somebody needs to do the installation work. And guess what? That's an electrician. So we actually need people with vocational skills as well, hand in hand. And we need to close the gap between having, you know, maybe what we need to do is think about having people who are apprentices 
inside of deep tech companies who can actually learn some of those vocational skills and see how it can be translated and in support of building new businesses as well. So I think we need to acknowledge that. We also need people with business skills. We need people with experience. We need people to come out of corporate Australia that have been there for a really long time but have great capacity and understand how to build a growing organisation and all that internal infrastructure that's needed. We need those people in companies as well because once you get after 50 people, every sort of 10 to 20 people you add to a business, culture breaks. And so you need to know how do you manage when you have 100 people. The the complexities of HR at 100 people are really different from when it's 10 and they're really different from when it's 300, 500, 1,000. There's a lot of things that you need to be able to bring and you need experience for that as well. Yeah, that's a uh, big challenge for fast-growing companies. We're getting near the end. I'm just going to stick on policy for a moment and then we're going to uh, just going to ask you flatly what's next for Cicada. But just on policy, I ask most people this when I interview them and I, I kind of have four basic questions, but uh, yep. let's just go one by one. What do you want government to do more of? What do you want government to do less of? What's government good at? Where are they achieving? And what, what should they just stop doing? Where should they just get out of the way? Take that as one question. When you look at the policy environment that affects your client startups, what are the things that jump out at you? Yeah, so the things that I would love government to do is have a long-term timeframe when they're thinking about policy levers and not try and do a new policy every one to two years and think that that's going to make a shift because while tech and consumer worlds may move fast, actually building a business in this space, the fundamentals don't change. And when you're looking at deep tech, they really don't change. So we need policies that are going to be in place for a substantive period of time if we want, you know, 20 more cochleas in this country and 30 more resmeds in this country and 50 more CSLs. We need to have a long-term view. So long-term view is, is one thing. A research translation fund would be another thing. One of the challenges that we have still in deep tech is patient capital. And most of the companies that you see that go on and are really, really successful they have received early government grants around the, the blue sky research they were initially doing. They've had support over the years through various mechanisms, either through CSIRO or on-site at universities. Once they get to commercialisation and once they start getting and attracting some VC funding, really having you know a research translation fund that is specifically focused on a handful of verticals where we have natural strengths in this country. So we already have some in medical, but, you know, in agriculture and food, things like that, energy, I think that would be really, really helpful. And it would also be a driver of bringing patient capital from overseas into the country. So, so that's probably my, my, my second one. And the third one is around skills, is actually really look holistically between higher education and the vet sector and actually understand it's not an either or. We actually need both and they serve different purposes. So when, you know, when you're reevaluating what's going to happen in VET, don't do it exclusively looking at VET. Do it in context of the entire ecosystem and the needs that are there because vocational training is critical to this country. It's really critical to business as well and, and not everything should be done by universities. So we, we kind of need to make sure that we get that right. What they're doing well, I think there's a couple of really good things. I think if I speak specifically at a state level now, because this is one I've seen firsthand over the last year, the New South Wales Medical Devices Fund, fantastic fund, right? They've done some really amazing work over the last six or seven years, funding novel research and practitioners and clinicians who are trying to bring a medical device to, to reality and to commercialization. I think in parallel to that, you know, very biased view, but I think actually supporting the medical device commercialization training program for the last six years has been something that was a game changer. 
And they really did that out of need and necessity in recognising when they stood up the funds that the capabilities weren't quite there. So investing in capability building alongside of the fund and capacity building in people I think is a game changer and I think the fact that they have this really long-term view about how that plays in with the health system in New South Wales is really great. I'd love to see that in other areas. So, again, it's that long-term view. It's kind of like here's how we're going to build capacity in people, here's how we're going to build some funding and they actually do it in coordination with VCs and, you know, with people like us. We run that program for them but they bring people together as a cohort and a community recognising that it's not just about the entrepreneur and it's not just about government. You actually have to bring the system together holistically. So I think that's been done really well and I think we could see that more of that at the federal level. I think that would be really fantastic. So a real coordinated approach. I think the other thing I would love to see government look at is really how do you build systemic change? This is what we're trying to talk about, systemic change. So government has a role to play, business has a role to play, universities have a role to play, incubators like us have a role to play, VCs have a role to play. Bringing parts of those systems together and doing just the piece that you're really good at I think is critical. So obviously the R&D grant is one we've got to get right. If we break that and can keep breaking it, it's just going to be a challenge for us and it's going to be a preventative of anything great coming out of the country. So we've got to get that right. Tax is another one. You know, how do we make tax really work for us and not against us? And by work for us, work on, you know, incentivizing sort of developing R&D in this country and building a business off it so that in the long term when that company is successful and they're employing a thousand people, tax does flow back into society through, you know, people's payroll tax and through PAYG tax and through that business tax. But, you know, getting the tax levers right, I think can be incredibly empowering to drive innovation, but also for that long-term benefit to society. So I think They're probably the things that are top of mind. And then I think, you know, it's got to be a sensible conversation, right? I don't think we should come to government and expect them to wave a magic wand and just fix everything. Like I think every individual in this conversation, if we really believe that we can be an innovation nation, that we can drive significant opportunity and economic benefit and, you know, I'll use the phrase jobs and growth, but in through solving the really big problems of the world by building science and engineering-based businesses, then we all have to lean into that. And so, you know, my role is to make this incubator as successful as I possibly can be, that all of these companies go on and thrive and survive and fulfil that. I need VCs around me who are willing to invest in those companies. They need to be close, not just at arm's length. They need to be advising. They need to be sending us interesting people to help and support. We need government to be able to whisper into their ear when policy isn't working for us and say, how can we fix this? Coming up with sensible suggestions, I think my biggest frustration in the ecosystem is when we start playing the blame game and government, you should just, or business, you should just. It's actually, we've all got to do something. We've all got a part to play in this. And we actually have to do it in a coordinated and aligned fashion if we believe that the end game is worth it and if we believe it's possible. Okay, I'm going to finish on this one, which is we're obviously heading into a period of great economic uncertainty. I think the PwC partner yesterday was saying the fourth quarter of this year will probably be the toughest quarter the nation has ever faced, certainly in the last hundred years. So, I mean, with that in mind, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but you know, what are your plans for Cicada? You you mentioned earlier that Deep Tech, because it has got a little bit of a longer horizon, you know, has been in a stable state. What, what are your immediate plans? And then more broadly, you know, how do you feel about the future? You know, you, you sound like an optimist, but let's see. 
It's really, it's really interesting, right? I've had this journey that's been like a roller coaster in here because we've got some companies that have really struggled through COVID nineteen, and then I've got others like SpeedX that have added nearly twenty people to their team, and they've doubled their production facilities on site, and they're just going from strength to strength. And so, I've kind of got these two extremes of experience of founders, and you know, multiply that by about sixty companies, and that's my day to day life. And so, I, I fluctuate between pessimism and optimism. But as a whole, I really think deep tech companies are here for the long term. And the reason they're here for the long term is fundamentally they're solving the really big problems of the world. Health has not gone away. Cancer has not gone away. STIs haven't gone away. Food hasn't changed. The need for sustainable and secure food systems hasn't changed. All of the SDG goals, the UN's SDG goals, none of them have changed. Electricity, security around that, sustainability, all of these things matter and they're still needed and the market size and the market appetite hasn't changed at all during this period and they're the companies that we're seeing that are really thriving and growing right now and they'll continue to grow on the outside of this because there's a necessary service or product to come to market there. What I'm excited about Cicada is that I did expect this time to be really challenging for us and and it is. It's not without its challenges. I don't want to dismiss and say everything is rosy. You know, there are some founders here that are really challenged and we're working on that journey with them. But in the same breath, we've had others that have got growth. And so for us, it's about how do we, for those who may be coming to their end, how do we make sure that those people go on and find a new home in the companies that are thriving here so that we keep that entrepreneurial spirit and that capacity and that capability in-house For us, what we're immediately working on is how do we get business more engaged in what's going on here? We've got some businesses that are looking to sponsor incubatees into Cicada Innovations. So they're really interested in some early stage science and engineering solutions to the problems they're facing in their business. And these ideas are nascent. They're not quite ready for the market. They need a bit more testing. And, you know, these businesses have recognized that they don't have the capacity to get them there. And so what they're going to do is send them to us and give them into our care and and make it our responsibility to get them to the point where they need to be, to be either investable or to go into a commercial relationship or to be acquired. And so we're looking at having a whole range of new companies come in under our sponsored incubation program over the next 12 to 18 months to help build that sort of early stage pipeline of deep tech businesses that will go on to be really successful in Australia. We're also almost full. So we're in a really... um, Mm. interesting space where we're having to kind of look at that and go, can we, is there enough that we can think about what is next and should we, how can we expand our impact and our offerings and have a reach beyond our four walls to really help drive economic transformation across the country? And so there's a range of online sort of programming that we're looking at standing up and, and doing to help. We're a for-purpose business. We really believe in our purpose. And so we're looking to build out greater collaborations at a national level that can really help drive that change and build for the long term, build for the future that we want our ancestors to see. Well, I'll be keeping an eye on it. You're lucky they're building a tech and innovation precinct just across Cleveland Street. Maybe maybe somebody will give me a building. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what happens with real estate prices. Look, I really appreciate your time today. Fascinating discussion. I'm sure we could have kept talking for a long time. There are a bunch of other areas I would have liked to have got into. So maybe next time, but Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's always great to have a conversation like this. We hope 
hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.